You are listening to the Visualizing War podcast. In each episode, we talk about representations of war in art, text, film, and music. With new guests each time, we look at how people have described or imagined war in different periods and places. And we discuss the impact which war stories have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Alice Koenig. And my name is Nicolas Vieta. And we co-direct the Visualizing War project at the University of St. Andrews. On the podcast today, we're going to be talking about conflict in the digital age and the complex relationship between conflict and digital media. We're joined by Professor Donatella De La Rata, Associate Professor of Communications and Media Studies at John Cabot University in Rome. Donatella specializes in Arabic speaking media. She lived in Damascus from 2007 to 2011. So Syrian media became a particular area of focus for her and especially the use made of iPhones, YouTube and online media to document what was happening as civil protests turned to civil war from 2011 onwards. There's a lot in Donatella's work that really resonates with our interest in the Visualizing War project. In particular, her work on narratives as interventions, which can shape conflict for better or worse. She has professional experience as a journalist and TV producer, and she managed the Arabic speaking community of the international NGO Creative Commons from 2008 to 2013. Alongside her expertise in media, Donatella is interested in storytelling across different art forms. She's curated several art exhibitions and film programs on Syria and co-founded Syria Untold, an online platform for independent writers to share stories about peace and war in Syria, which might otherwise be unheard. So we're going to be asking her a bit about that, as well as the darker sides of documenting conflict in the digital age. We really are in an age of digital war, where digital technologies and media are transforming how wars are fought and experienced and reported and remembered. So it's a really important topic to dive into. Donatella, thank you very much for making time to talk to us today. Welcome to the Visualizing War podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. So Donatella, can you kick us off by giving us and our listeners a quick overview of what you think the most significant developments in media and social media have been in the last decade. So we don't need to dive into conflict straight away, but could you just talk to us about what you mean when you say we live in a networked age and talk us through the sort of the digital revolution and how that's changed our communication habits and the role played by traditional media? Um, thank you for this question. When I mention that we live in a networked age, I do mean that when, when I talk about Syria, of course, I do mean that the conflict has been uh, uploaded the very moment in which uh, people started to film it. So the conflict itself was conceived uh, as a networked event uh, uh, by the mere fact that it was uh, filmed and uploaded live. But however, you know, since you said that it's good to have uh, an overview of the situation without uh, necessarily mentioning uh, war zones or, or crises or conflicts, uh, I think the most interesting development uh, in uh, networked media for me in the last decade is precisely something that comes out from uh, the so-called Arab Spring. So we are now in 2021, exactly 10 years after the outbreak of the Arab Springs in the, in the Middle East. And I do think that the Arab Spring acted as a laboratory for many techniques, especially techniques of surveillance and censorships, censorship that have been adopted later on also by Western neoliberal democracies. 
for example, we are all familiar with these expressions of, uh, you know, Facebook revolution, Twitter revolution, or Web 2.0 revolutions that were uh, mostly used in the English-speaking media, so in the Western world, to define what was happening in the Middle East 10 years ago. There was an excitement for the Arab Spring being an inherently networked phenomenon. If you remember, there was this uh, hashtag fever, uh, the domino effect, uh, so uh, starting by Tunisia in late 2010, and then moving on to Egypt in early 2011, and then, of course, uh, Yemen, uh, Bahrain, Libya, Syria, etc., etc. And all these events were unfolding live on social media using, for example, hashtags, you know. And there was an excitement, uh, especially in uh, Western commentators, uh, that this phenomenon, because it was inherently driven by um, by, by the networks, you know, by the internet, would uh, lead necessarily to progress uh, and, uh, you know, democracy in places such as the Middle East, uh, which were uh, usually ruled by authoritarian leaders. However, as the story unfolds, we know that this is not exactly what happened, and they are spring uh, uh, very quickly uh, descended into a winter, a very dark winter, uh, civil wars, uh, chaos, destruction, uh, you know, the use of social media, which was so prominent uh, in the unfolding of the protests uh, in the first year, uh, caught uh, by surprise uh, these authoritarian leaders, you know, would, which uh, would not expect the people to be so savvy in terms of using uh, techniques. We are, of course, talking about the population that is uh, the majority of the population in the Arab Middle East is under 35. Uh, so we are talking about um, a big chunk of the population being uh, almost uh, digital natives. Uh, uh, so of course, uh, they were definitely fluent in, uh, in, uh, in the use of social media 10 years ago when the protest started. Um, but so these authoritarian regimes were caught by surprise. Uh, uh, and we're kind of watching uh, the events unfolding without being able, you know, to, to stop this uh, networked fever that was uh, taking over the entire region and, and the world was watching. If you remember, you know, the only measure that an authoritarian leader like uh, Asni Mubarak in Egypt was able to adopt uh, to kind of uh, contain the protests was actually the internet shutdown. Uh, for three days in Egypt, which in fact resulted uh, by having uh, the opposite effect. Uh, so to actually drive more people to hit the streets and uh, go to Tahrir and other squares of protest. So they were completely unprepared, but I maintain that after this moment of excitement, which is 2011, it's the beginning of this uh, incredible phenomena of uh, revolutions, uh, uh, social movements, uh, street protests that uh, uh, started in the Middle East, but then moved on to also uh, New York, uh, as we remember, Occupy Wall Street, uh, and Indignados in Spain, and many other social protests unfolding in the entire planet in 2011. However, I do think that authoritarian regimes have learned uh, the lesson, and not only authoritarian regimes, but uh, corporations, uh, in fact. Um, and uh, this moment of freedom, which is 2011, is no longer possible 10 years after. Why? Because, uh, I mean, social media is becoming uh, an incredibly surveilled place. Uh, we have been uh, now, you know, in the, in the context of uh, the new unfolding Israel-Gaza conflict, we have seen 
that many of the most prominent social networks have been censoring tweets uh, or, you know, uh, posts uh, uh, with the hashtag of uh, Gaza under attack or Palestine under attack, proving that, in fact, there is a filtering operation uh, going on also on social media. And uh, social media are no longer to be conceived as uh, neutral platforms or environment uh, in which people just interact. Uh, social media networks are not responsible for what people are, are saying. Uh, but in fact, as we progress into these uh, past decades, uh, and as we witness also major uh, scandals unfolding, such as Cambridge Analytica, we do know that in fact, uh, major social media platforms uh, are gatekeepers. And this was not so uh, apparent to, in 2011. We, we were under the in illusion that everybody is free to post whatever, to express whatever opinion. And actually the only problem is an authoritarian regime who might uh, end blocking the free flow of expression or uh, imprisoning the people who are trying to express their opinions. But this is no longer the case because we do have gatekeepers who are headquartered in our Western neoliberal democracy. So implementing processes such as filtering that are becoming now kind of mainstream and adopted not just in the crisis situation, but I'm sure everyone has heard about, I don't know, Instagram, for example, uh, censoring uh, images of mothers uh, breastfeeding, you know, just because there is some nudity involved. As much as artists also have been uh, reporting uh, uh, censorship coming from Instagram or Facebook uh, when it comes to, um, yeah, using, uh, for example, uh, nudity as an artistic mean of expression or uh, political parody or whatever. So we are witnessing this phenomenon of filtering also in, in Western neoliberal uh, democracies. It's, it's no longer the exceptionalism of the Arab world, but it's a practice that it's increasingly adopted also in Western neoliberal democracies as much as, you know, for example, content uh, removal or deletion, which, which is something that Syrian activists have been experiencing since the get-go. The claims that uh, YouTube or Facebook have, you know, deleted, uh, removed uh, content, uh, go back to 2013, so two years after the beginning of the uprising. And Facebook and YouTube uh, uh, at the time responded uh, that, you know, this content was violating uh, community guidelines uh, because it was too violent, because it was uh, maybe mobilizing toward hate speech. Uh, but the question at stake is that, uh, I mean, is someone who's documenting a civil war also part of it, you know? So uh, the, the question is quite complicated because uh, there might be, of course, violence involved. Uh, however, when someone is reporting events unfolding on the ground that are violent events, such as uh, what happened in Syria, they are acting as witnesses of the events unfolding. So is this violent content or is this a content that uh, portrays violence, uh, violence that is, uh, however, enacted by a third party? So this question, you know, grew much more important with uh, in this decade. So from 2013, we have been uh, witnessing, and there are NGOs denouncing this, uh, we have been witnessing a systematic uh, censorship of the content, censorship meaning like removal of this content, which is uh, allegedly violent. So basically the social media platforms have been uh, doing this uh, removal, implementing this practice of removal for uh, the past, uh, you know, seven, eight years. And this, I'm afraid that this practice of uh, content removal is now 
uh, a practice, as I said, you know, also for the filtering is a practice that has been uh, now embraced uh, also when it comes to a less uh, controversial context. So not necessarily something that happens in the context of uh, a war zone or a crisis uh, zone, but uh, actually can be um, implemented also in the case of a situation that unfolds in a, in a Western neoliberal democracy setting. How does this situation, as far as uh, war reporting is concerned, how does that compare to when we were still using more traditional media? Because on, on the one hand, I could imagine uh, for, for an actual journalist, an official journalist, there are ways and means of blocking access to certain sites so you can make sure they don't report on certain things. But at the same time, maybe they're more difficult to stop because if you arrest a journalist after they have done their footage, then governments often get involved. So, I mean, how, how does this situation with access and reporting and censorship um, that we have in the digital age, how does that compare to um, the more kind of traditional media? When it comes to networked media, as we know, everybody, everyone can be a reporter. Everyone who has a smartphone uh, connected to the network can become a real-time witness of any event unfolding on the ground. And uh, I mean, we have seen this not only unfolding in the context of the Arab Spring, but also more recently with uh, George Floyd uh, murdering. Uh, and I mean, it's, it's a practice that has been apparent also in the case of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, a lot of people who were passers-by ended up being uh, uh, witnesses and uh, not only witnesses, kind of like performing the role of a journalist, uh, uh, um, producing evidence that might also end up uh, becoming uh, a proof during uh, trials. So this pervasiveness uh, of the digital, it's definitely a condition that uh, uh, changes, does change the game when it comes to contemporary journalism and reporting. The plus of this situation, uh, as I just said, is uh, pervasiveness. So there are eyes everywhere, there are cameras everywhere. And so it's uh, much more difficult that an event stays uncovered. And this is the case of Syria, for example, because at the time when the uprising uh, uh, started in March uh, 2011, very few foreign journalists in the country and uh, after the outbreak of the uprising, they were barred from entering the country. So the only people who were, uh, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, reporting from Syria were, in fact, this uh, improvised de facto journalists that are not trained as journalists, but are just citizens. Uh, this is why we use this expression, citizen uh, journalists. So this is definitely a plus because there are, there are places such as Syria 2011 in which uh, the only way to access the news is to have this army of uh, untrained journalists who, who eventually would turn into journalists and witnesses of the events. Uh, however, mm, I do have to stress on uh, the negative side, you know, of having this, uh, you know, kind of citizen journalists, improvised journalists replacing professional journalists. Uh, as you have mentioned, I mean, a professional journalist is also protected by an infrastructure by an institution, meaning yeah, there is an employer who protects them. There are trade unions, there, is, there are laws, there is a contract, there are ethics involved. And all this professional infrastructure is missing when it comes to citizen journalists. So, of course, we cannot blame these people who used to be, I don't know, shopkeepers or, you know, taxi drivers for 
becoming improvised journalists and lacking uh, this uh, professional infrastructure that a professional journalist would have. But as a matter of fact, this becomes very problematic. And again, the Arab Spring offers a very good example to underline the criticalities of, uh, of citizen journalism. So for example, in, uh, in the beginning of the uprising uh, in Syria, because of this uh, impossibility to, to go to Syria and report from the ground, uh, with a professional journalist, so international networks started to rely heavily on citizen journalists. And the citizen journalists who are, again, shopkeepers or taxi drivers or university students made a lot of mistakes because they did lack this professional infrastructure, ethics, the ontology. So, for example, when it comes to a request like, mm, this image is too blurred, I want to get a more professional shot. So sometimes they ended up staging an event in order to put to the tripod, the camera on the tripod, and ending up having the professional image that was requested by international networks, you know. So of course, uh, unfortunately, this is uh, something that happened a lot in the context of Syria, because also it's a long time conflict. I mean, it's something that uh, it's basically still uh, unfolding, you know. So it's also the temporality of the conflict that uh, obliges or, or drive or pushes people in a way to act. Uh, to act in this very problematic way. So also there is a, a tendency in uh, Western uh, media and academia, especially 10 years ago, to celebrate uh, the power of citizen journalism. But I think that uh, once again, the Arab Spring provide with an example that you know, shows the criticalities of such a phenomenon and not just the advantages. Yeah, everything you've said so far is this sort of extraordinary learning journey where the networked age, the hashtag phenomenon, hashtag fever, citizen journalism is something that perhaps naively people celebrated as a positive and there are positives, but you're helping us unpick some of the incredible complexities. Um, and you do this at much more length in your, your book published in 2018, Shooting the Revolution, Visual Media and Warfare in Syria. So Donatella, you've sketched this picture where Citizen journalism develops. It's sort of ordinary young people with iPhones documenting protests, the urgency of the moment, inspiring people to start filming. But as you're saying, citizen journalism starts to become more of a strategy, um, something that then international media get involved with, start paying for, and then the ethics and the complexities come in. And, and that's when content gets curated and so on. At the start of your book, Shooting the Revolution, you write, and I'm quoting here, the non-violent Syrian uprising that turned into an armed conflict was born digital and networked from the very moment an unarmed activist used a smartphone camera to shoot while an armed man raised a gun to shoot at him. I wonder if you can just talk us through that story a bit more and pull out what you were trying to tell us with it. Yeah, sure. So actually, this is a trope that I see in the context of Syria. I witnessed it firsthand as I was in Syria when the uprising started. Uh, I'm referring to this uh, trope of uh, shooting uh, as in a double movement, uh, which actually inspires also the title of my book. The double movement is about uh, a protester who is unarmed, who takes the camera and starts filming because they want to bear witness of what is happening on the ground. And the moment in which they film the events, they immediately 
upload the footage on the internet because, as I said before, these are digital natives. The gesture is coming from people who are digital natives uh, who understand uh, the internet, uh, networked media in general, as part of their daily life. The moment in which uh, the protester shoots in order to document the violence unfolding on the ground, they are met with the counter movement coming from the sniper, for example, regime forces, uh, jihadists, you mentioned it, armed forces in general, who shoot at them to kill them you know, to kind of interrupt uh, this uh, process of ongoing witnessing that is uh, taking place live and streamed live onto YouTube or other platforms. So there are thousands of videos, uh, especially in the case of Syria, that uh, document this trope, uh, the double shooting. There are videos in which you see, you do not see the face of the protester, but you see the hand of the protester shaking through the footage. Uh, this is why, you know, some people have uh, referred to the Syrian uprising as uh, a pixelated revolution. This is an expression used by a Lebanese artist, uh, Rabia Mruh, uh, who called it the pixelated revolution, referring to the blurred frames that were uh, produced by these uh, unnamed uh, protesters. The hand, of course, is shaking because these people are in fear in deep fear and anxiety that they want to film the protest because they want to produce evidence of what is happening. But of course they are humans. So they are also afraid that they're going to die while they are filming. And so you see this uh, very evidently in the footage, uh, many, again, thousands of anonymous YouTube videos have this uh, kind of blurred frames uh, in which the protester is trying to, uh, to shoot what's happening on the ground and at the same time uh, they run away from the scene and they are sometimes they they meet uh, uh, their death live on camera so the camera falls down because they are uh, shot at by by the sniper uh, so um, aesthetically speaking again this is also a, a trope that we find uh, analyzing the youtube footage uh, anonymous footage produced by by protesters in syria and I think this this really gets us into the complex relationship between conflict and narrative conflict and storytelling, because there you've got a new storytelling trope emerging, a new storytelling method, um, but also a, a new kind of story. And, and with the camera as a weapon, but that's actually shaping the conflict itself because it's creating a new enemy for the armed forces to target. So it's actually changing the direction, the focus, the emphasis of the conflict. So very, very complex relationship. Just very recently, going back to a point you raised earlier, Donatella, I saw some discussion of whether the military coup and oppression in Myanmar, which has now been documented by thousands and thousands of protesters holding their video cameras up um, in defiance and, and with incredible bravery, the, the footage that they've produced may end up actually supporting law cases and bringing people to justice for crimes against humanity. So you can understand the motivations that people have for wanting to document, um, but also the incredible risk they incur. So uh, Donatella, one question I was having uh, was whether you could tell us a bit more about where you see the origins of the kind of the digital age where people make the step 
to become a sort of journalists, documenters, instead of bystanders, instead of victims in these situations. Is this partly for a serious concern? Was that a response to the lack of media reporting? Because as you were saying earlier, professional journalists were not allowed to film the conflict. Or was this uh, in affordance, so to speak, of the new technologies that we have the possibility now, so we're using it? Is there a drive in us to try and get as many kind of different perspectives on conflicts that impact us, that go kind of beyond officially sanctioned versions. So is there an element also of this kind of uh, skepticism that we have now about official stories that are being told to us because we're more aware of how those stories uh, might have been manipulated? I like the word affordance. You know, I do think that this is actually a very nice word to, to catch what, uh, at least what I think. Uh, it's definitely an affordance of the digital culture, the global digital culture overall, that if we go back to 2011, was unfolding since 2004, 2005, which is when Facebook uh, starts. Mm -hmm. And then after that, uh, YouTube, uh, and then the other uh, social media networks. Um, uh, there is a um, Californian uh, entrepreneur, his name is uh, Tim O'Reilly, who writes at the end of 2004, a very interesting blog post called What is Web 2.0? Uh, in which he makes the claim that the internet is changing and embracing a new kind of mindset, uh, which is going to become also a new business model. He describes it as uh, understanding the network as a platform, a platform in which users will eventually produce the content and uh, a good tech entrepreneur in his view would be someone who exploits the relationships that are born uh, on these platforms uh, and make them uh, profitable. And that's the beginning, you know, of the, we call it today data mining model. Uh, however, in 2004, this is really pioneering. It's the first time that someone uh, uh, sketches out the structure of the soon-to-be uh, social web uh, and participatory culture. Uh, so this participatory culture really takes over in the second half of the 2000s. Uh, if you look at uh, uh, YouTube uh, tagline, broadcast yourself, uh, you know, it's an invitation to put yourself and your individuality at the center stage. Uh, it's uh, the beginning of an era which I define in the book, the me media. You know, it is no longer a mass media that uh, puts, for example, a nation together as it happened for television in, in uh, post-war Europe, but it's uh, a media that emphasizes uh, the individuality of each of us. Uh, and of course, uh, the Arab world is no exception to this. The Arab world is very much enmeshed in this uh, global digital media culture. And therefore we should not think about, you know, Syria as a backward place in which people were not, uh, especially young people were not uh, being raised uh, with this mindset. Uh, no, it's quite the opposite. They were completely, especially the digital natives within this kind of culture. And I had witnessed this uh, firsthand because uh, I was uh, heading the Arabic speaking community for Creative Commons which is an international NGO um, headquartered at the time in San Francisco, in the very same building where we had uh, Twitter. And uh, Creative Commons was founded by a law professor, law scholar and activist Lawrence Lessig in 2001. Uh, very much you know, translates this idea that the social web is about sharing, 
freely sharing content, circulating content, uh, remixing it. Uh, so uh, this is really, you know, an organization that translates uh, this first phase of excitement for the participatory web. And so at the time when I was heading this, uh, the Arabic speaking branch of the organization, I did witness uh, uh, by organizing, you know, geek fest, bar camps, uh, Arab bloggers meetings, uh, I did witness uh, firsthand that this youth uh, was completely fascinated by the possibility of the new media as much as we were in the Western world. And they wanted to be part of it. They wanted to be connected with this global digital media culture. They were fluent in the language of digital media culture. They were very tech-savvy people, I have to say, especially in Syria and Palestine, there is a very fertile ground for people who, who work in uh, coding, uh, open source programming. So I want to say that definitely this is an affordance. We should not think about the Arab Middle East as an exception, mm -hmm. you know. But however, then I do think that the exceptional situation, which is, of course, the, the outbreak of the uprising and the extreme violence with which this uprising was met, unfortunately, especially in the case of Syria, did generate the need of this generation to tell the story. So in the beginning, it's definitely an affordance of digital, global digital media culture that has shaped this youth in the Arab Middle East. But then when the uprising starts, it's definitely also the need of witnessing what is happening because uh, professional journalists are, are not uh, allowed to come to Syria or those who come to Syria, regardless of the ban, such as Mary Colvin, for example, are met with death. Unfortunately. Mm. So then after, you know, for example, I, I think the Mary Colvin case is uh, a turning point because after seeing uh, how brutally she was killed, deliberately targeted by the regime, uh, then many other professional journalists and especially their organizations, they thought, OK, this is no longer feasible, you know, to send journalists mm. into Syria, even, you know, having them sneak uh, into rebel controlled zones. So, of course, then these youth realize that if they do not tell the story, no one would do that. So that's definitely something that happens in the case of uh, the urgency manifested by the crisis situation in Syria. So, Donatella, you've already said a little bit about the way in which international media organisations started paying citizen journalists that perhaps affected the kind of journalism that they were doing. I wonder if you can say a tiny bit more about how other groups, institutions, perhaps strategize citizen journalism during the Syrian conflict. Yes, to start with, uh, I would like to say that, again, going back to this uh, moment of excitement for the potentials of uh, the participatory web, Everybody, scholars, journalists, uh, analysts, uh, were very much, I think, romanticizing this phenomenon that uh, we call uh, citizen journalism by saying that, okay, this is now the time in which uh, finally everybody can express themselves uh, freely, can contribute to the exercise of democracy by participating into uh, the process of newsmaking, uh, which is finally something happening uh, grassroots, uh, so bottom-up rather than top-down, as in a previous uh, scenario, which is the broadcast media. So this kind of narrative uh, had been informing the reports, uh, analysis, uh, books uh, that have been authored at the time. And I'm talking uh, even before the Arab Spring, but again, 
going back to the mid 2000s, which is the, the moment in which this social web finally unfolds. So there was this narrative that was kind of romanticizing citizen journalism. Uh, but then we have to see how citizen journalism works in a real situation, especially in a crisis situation such as uh, Syria. After the very first moments in which uh, people are definitely driven by this uh, uh, desire, uh, which is a need, uh, you know, to document what is happening in order to produce evidence that uh, might uh, help uh, trials, future trials uh, uh, in the international court, for example. So after this moment of urgency and need, uh, there is also the moment of, uh, you know, from the point of view of an activist asking, how do I support myself in this situation, which is lasting not just one week, one month, or even one year, but years and years. So we are talking about a crisis situation, which is not only the war that is unfolding, but it's uh, the overall crisis of people losing their jobs, uh, losing their family members, losing their houses. Uh, so it's a material crisis in which people have to survive in a way or another. So, of course, uh, uh, reporting moves from a need, a ethical desire to something else, uh, which I would call labor you know, because people, they have to sustain the, the, themselves. On the other hand, there is an increase in the demand of foreign institutions. So not just news outlets, but also NGOs, for example, or foreign governments want to understand what is happening on the ground in Syria, because it's a very strategic place, of course, for the Middle East, mm -hmm. for geopolitics overall. So these different subjects want to jump on, on the Syrian file, and so they need to recruit people, uh, because as we said before, it's no longer possible to send your own journalists or your own uh, reporters or your own people on the ground. So you have to recruit people among those who are already there and also who understands the local language, the local culture. So there is a kind of, you know, I use the expression labor, not by chance. It's a matter of supply and demand. Uh, so the supply and demand are both there. There is an increase in the demand, uh, which is met by the supply on the ground. Uh, the protesters turn into citizen journalists, uh, turn into filmmakers uh, who provide the demand. So the institutions, uh, the NGOs, the news outlets with what they want to, to see. And um, this is, of course, a tricky game when it comes to uh, a crisis situation such as Syria. But also we have to expect that such a thing happens because it's not possible to think that people would survive a crisis situation, a war zone, without being uh, paid for their labor. But the fact that they are paid for what they produce uh, kind of introduces some variables uh, such as, again, as I mentioned before, deontology. If, uh, the demand is to have more stable footage, you know, less pixelated footage, then how do I end up producing that? If I'm not trained as a filmmaker, as a journalist, you know, then I would stage it because that's uh, probably the easiest thing to do for a person who does not have this professional background. And so this generates, uh, of course, a big dilemma, you know, 
maybe that's a good point to kind of delve a bit more into this positive or negative effects of citizen journalism. So you've described how the whole movement has gained enormous traction, how people are coming in also from the inside because they're interested in this. So I wonder whether, just to start with, you could talk a bit about what you see as sort of the most important positive effects of citizen journalism before we then also look at the negative aspects. Well, definitely there is a positive effect in having more voices in a place like Syria, for example, but overall in the Arab Middle East, which is characterized, historically speaking, by authoritarian media, a system which is not possible to penetrate, you know, as a citizen. There is no relation whatsoever between the citizen and their media. The media is just the expression, the mere expression of uh, what power wants you to hear uh, in a place like Syria and overall in the Arab Middle East. So uh, definitely I see a blossoming of different point of views, expressions, and also overall creativity in the aftermath of the uprising. Uh, I myself have co-founded this uh, media outlet called Syria Untold in 2012 uh, with uh, a group of Syrian and another Italian uh, uh, Syrian scholar. And the desire, when we founded Syrian Told back in 2012, uh, uh, we really wanted to express, uh, to give a platform to uh, untold stories, so voices coming from example from civil society who we felt uh, they would not be able to, to be heard through mainstream media. But as Syrian told, there are many other Syrian outlets that have been flourishing in the aftermath of the uprising, breaking the de facto monopoly of the government in, in telling Syrian stories. You know? So I think that's definitely a good outcome. And as now the majority of these outlets are based in Europe, because the people who started them have been obliged to to seek asylum in, in Europe or to escape Syria. So I think, you know, this environment of uh, alternative media, uh, grassroots media is now uh, facing a new phase, uh, which is, uh, okay, so what do we do now that we are out of our country? Uh, we have still to contribute to telling the story of our country, but from the diaspora perspective. And at the same time, uh, Syrians are becoming integrated with uh, the European societies that are hosting them, Germany, uh, France, the UK, all the European countries who have been providing the Syrians with political asylum. Um, so it's going to be definitely an interesting phase of integration, also from a European perspective. And I think that uh, the Syrian people have learned the lesson of, uh, you know, uh, through the practice, it's not something that they have learned at school uh, by training, but as a matter of fact, they have been trained on the ground to kind of shape uh, a new media ecosystem which was not existing before. And I think this is uh, a good outcome, uh, not to mention also the artistic side, uh, because many of, of those who were uh, improvised uh, YouTubers and filmmakers then have become professional filmmakers uh, who have found uh, success also in uh, major uh, international venues uh, such as uh, Venice uh, Film Festival, Berlin Film Festival, Locarno Film Festival, you know. So we have been hearing about uh, Syrian documentary filmmaking, Syrian art uh, throughout Europe and America. So I think uh, 
this blossoming of uh, creativity and the free expressions is definitely a good outcome of uh, 2011. Mm. That's very interesting. Many positives then, uh, um, partly documenting, bearing witness, uh, um, perhaps providing material for courts of law, but also this explosion of different voices, breaking the monopoly of state media. But of course, not every voice out there had serious best interests at heart. So I wonder if we could turn perhaps to some of the, the more negative consequences. In your book, Shooting the Revolution, um, you write, Syria is the first fully developed network battleground in which the technological infrastructure supporting practices of uploading, sharing and remixing has become dramatically implicated in the production and reproduction of violence. So can you just talk us and our listeners through this in a bit more detail? What connection do you see between digital media, citizen journalism, and the production of violence? Well, I'm referring to the fact that uh, in a participatory web uh, in environment, uh, everyone can be a producer of media, including violent forces. Uh, uh, so including uh, snipers, including uh, jihadists, uh, including torturers. Uh, I mean, everybody is empowered by this technological infrastructure to produce uh, visual media that is uh, aiming at uh, performing violence in a way. Um, so, for example, in the book, I, I talk about uh, uh, not just, you know, the, the peaceful protesters who, who have been uh, producing images uh, uh, as a weapon to protect themselves from the violence that was unfolding on the ground, but also perpetrators who have tortured uh, live on camera in order to produce aesthetic performances of that very torture. Uh, I talk about jihadists uh, who have, uh, and I think the, the most uh, visible and uh, famous uh, slash infamous example is of course ISIS. Uh, the way in which ISIS uh, uses uh, visual media in order to trigger violence and also to, to make propaganda, because this is also what they did with their videos. It's uh, unprecedented. The way in which also ISIS has been using a participatory culture, meaning hashtags, uh, meaning memes, uh, for example, lolcats, uh, you know, the most kind of uh, allegedly banal, uh, mundane uh, digital media objects have been used by terrorist organizations such as ISIS uh, to produce more violence and at the same time also to kind of do a very effective propaganda because if you remember at the time a lot of people also young people from the UK for example Denmark France they actually left and went to Syria in order to join the fight the jihad you know against the regime so I mean these images do something that we would define in the scholarship using Aron Farouki uh, a German uh, filmmaker and media theorist uh, who calls these images operational, you know, images uh, who no longer represent things, uh, but mobilize towards an action. And they, in fact, become performative in that they push people to do something, to react in a way or another to what is happening. And of course, I mean, there are seminal examples coming from ISIS, such as uh, at the top of my mind, you know, the uh, live killing of the Jordanian pilot uh, who was captured by ISIS. Uh, and then he was put in a cage uh, and he was live burned uh, and uh, using three different cameras, uh, doing this live editing. I mean, from the technical point of view, this is like a great, into brackets, example of how 
ISIS is exploiting uh, the, the power of the image uh, to uh, terrorize people, of course, but also to show their power, their military power to people who would eventually join the organization. ISIS has been using uh, the networks in a very effective way, but also less famous uh, than ISIS. Jihadi organizations on the ground uh, have been uh, using, for example, YouTube as, as a source of uh, crowdfunding, you know, many organizations have uh, started to shoot uh, their own videos uh, and, uh, you know, following, for example, also their military actions on the ground and then asking for support uh, using uh, crowdfunding, which is a practice that uh, in Western neoliberal democracies we identify as, uh, you know, something very innocent that, uh, I don't know, artists or other people would uh, uh, record to in order to support their projects, but uh, on the ground in Syria, unfortunately, it was used by by many jihadist organizations to raise uh, funds in order to achieve their goals. Uh, overall, this is, uh, you know, everybody is empowered by the networks to have their own voice being heard. Again, going back to what we said before, broadcast yourself. The tagline of uh, YouTube here is uh, revelatory of a phenomenon that is pervasive. So it's not only the peaceful protester who is empowered by the networks to become uh, a good uh, civil servant or you know, citizen journalist, but also the jihadis are empowered by that very same network uh, to use it in order to produce more violence. I guess that takes us also to an element that's very much at the heart of our project as well, which is this question of the relationship between narrative and reality. And uh, I think you're talking about two interrelated aspects of this. One is that there's this feedback loop. So people tell these mini stories through social media and they have a very concrete effect, can be a positive effect. It can be also a very negative effect when it's a recruitment tool or when it's a propaganda tool. And at the same time, I think we're also delving into something very interesting, the way in which narratives and representations stop being just representations, visualizations, they're part of the conflict. They're used as weapons or they shift the balance between attacker and attack. As Alice was also saying earlier, new people who used to be innocent bystanders, they become targets now. And that's something I wanted to ask you a bit more about, because that's also something you talk about in your in your work, this connection between visibility and violence and the continuation of violence, the way in which narrative forms, uh, sharing platforms, memes, the like economy, and so on and so forth, actually shape the conflict. So uh, you say at one point in your book, and I'm quoting, the networks have granted the utmost visibility and shareability to the most extreme violence. And you were just giving us a few examples of that, really. Finally, merging the physical annihilation of places with the endless online regeneration, producing a sort of on life which gets renewed every time and content is manipulated, re-uploaded, reposted and shared as meanings are combined and recombined in different clashing versions. So essentially, you're saying that the digital age also reenacts violence again and again, it multiplies, terror and fear, it keeps the conflict alive in many ways, it allows people from different ends of the spectrum to keep engaging with the conflict and keep perpetuating the conflict by engaging with the digital material. So can you say a bit more about this and also maybe how that is probably different from past conflicts that were documented in the more traditional written accounts, news reports from the pre-digital age? Uh, traditional war photography and so on. Yeah, what I think is a uh, defining aspect uh, of these networked conflicts, uh, Syria 
is uh, one of the first examples. I mean, 2011 is one of the first examples, but I do believe that unfortunately we will have to witness more networked conflicts in the years to come. But what is a defining aspect of this networked conflicts is the dynamics of participation that they are enmeshed in, which is defined by the element of circulation. If we go back to what theorists have written about the so-called social web, uh, Web 2.0, there is an interesting quote from a scholar, uh, Harry Jenkins, who says, if it doesn't spread, it's dead. His concept of spreadability refers to content that is able to travel across the different platforms, uh, a content that does not move uh, in Jenkins' uh, mindset. Uh, it's a content that becomes sticky. So no matter how valuable it is from the content point of view, but the fact that this content does not become viral condemns it to extinction. So virality is the, and circulations are the quintessential dynamic of, of the social web. And this is unfortunately very true also in the context of uh, civil wars and violent conflicts. Uh, I reframed Harry uh, Jenkins' motto by writing that uh, if it's dead, uh, it spreads. You know, he's, he used to say, if, uh, if it doesn't spread, it's dead. And I say, if it's dead, uh, it spreads, uh, referring to uh, the infamous examples that I have mentioned before, like ISIS. For example, mm -hmm. the fact that the content is so much about death and violence triggers a mechanism of hyper visibility that is unfortunately unstoppable. If you remember Twitter, for example, who immediately started to sanction uh, ISIS related accounts, uh, did not succeed because the very dynamic of the social web is replication by circulation, you know, by virality. And so uh, a jihadi website can be mirrored by anyone because this, the infrastructure of the social web is decentralized. So it's no longer as, you know, in a broadcast media context in which you destroy the TV headquarter and then so the signal is gone and uh, everything else is gone. No, you cannot do that in, in the context of the web 2.0. So you shut down an ISIS-related account, an ISIS-related website, but it replicates exponentially into the mechanism of the open social web. And in fact, even if a proprietary social media like Facebook, YouTube, were very responsive to the request of international governments to shut down these accounts and remove the violent content, I talk about this in my book, I'm afraid that uh, places uh, such as the Internet Archives that are born with this mindset of openness, uh, which was uh, fostered in the first phase of the social web, uh, have become repositories of jihadi content, as a matter of fact. Because, you know, it is uh, the mentality of the beginning of the social web, a mentality of uh, laissez-faire, a mentality of uh, liberalism, you know, in which uh, governments should not censor the content in which uh, content should flow freely and the social web provides for the technological infrastructure for such a thing to happen you know so i'm afraid that with this architecture uh, provided by the web 2.0 of course uh, 
there is no possibility to stop violence uh, as violence replicates uh, endlessly through the different nodes uh, defining uh, the participatory web. And this is uh, what I call in the book, the tragedy of digital commons. And I, I use this expression with uh, sadness because I was uh, someone who used to advocate for sharing freely. Uh, you know, I represented the Creative Commons for five years in the Middle East, uh, encouraging this culture of sharing. But the tragedy of the commons, uh, you know, uh, we use this expression to define, uh, yeah, common goods on, on the internet that uh, uh, we should uh, protect from the interference of uh, the governments of corporations. But I, I'm afraid that what happens uh, in the case of conflicts like Syria is that uh, those who take advantage of the openness of the web are not progressive subjects, you know, but in this case, uh, ISIS, for example. So virality and circulation are definitely inherent uh, traits, uh, features of the new networked uh, age and of the new networked conflicts. And this is, of course, uh, very different from previous conflicts that used to be mediatized, for example, Vietnam, or also, you know, the Gulf War in 91, or the invasion of Iraq in 2003. However, they do lack the networked element. Uh, so they do lack this uh, enmeshment between a technological infrastructure provided by the social web and uh, the human fabric who supports this very infrastructure by well, with the practice of sharing and uh, virally spreading content. And I, I think this is a seminal difference between uh, a networked conflict as Syria is and conflicts such as uh, yeah, Vietnam or the Gulf War who do have media element, but do lack the features of being a networked conflict. I'm, I'm really interested in what you say about if it's dead, it spreads, because that truth in itself isn't necessarily new. Um, I'm thinking back to some of the ancient material that Nicholas and I are familiar with. If you think back to Homer's great epic poem, the Iliad, for example, which bits do people tend to remember? Which bits were reproduced in art again and again, in, in carving on vases and so on? Well, it's often the very poignant or poetic or um, dramatic death scenes. Um, and uh, uh, we've talked to other podcast guests about all the bits of conflict that are left out of traditional storytelling, the traditional tropes of war stories. So the victims on the side, the civilians, the children um, and, and the sort of the centering of soldiers and the high stakes drama. So the idea that, you know, if it's dead, it spreads isn't new in itself. But what you've just explored is the, the sort of the incredible power that the new digital media have to take that to another level in, in very destructive ways. And as you say, it's something that we must have on our horizon as we think about the power of war stories, the power of storytelling and narrating and describing conflict in this new age that we're still kind of getting to grips with and of course one of the things that the digital age does as well is it sort of shatters geographical limitations and boundaries doesn't it and I think you talk about that a little bit in your book as well Syria as a geographical space and as a political entity is almost annihilated by the digital reporting on the conflict not just by the conflict itself and similarly Daesh um, it becomes a kind of globally embracing entity that's not sort of limited or located in purely physical space. I wonder if you could say a tiny bit more about that. Yeah, of course, uh, when I speak about uh, uh, network conflict, uh, I refer to uh, several, uh, you know, features that identify 
contemporary networks. Uh, and one of them is definitely this virtuality that, uh, you know, it's no longer in a, in a network, the structure is no longer important uh, where something or someone is uh, physically located as much as uh, they can replicate themselves uh, endlessly over this, uh, you know, network structure. You know, so for example, in the case of Daesh, uh, which is the Arabic name of uh, ISIS, uh, Daesh uh, has been, uh, has characterized itself, uh, its its strategy in a very different way from previous uh, jihadi organization, namely Al-Qaeda, for example, which is probably the most famous one before ISIS in the Western world. Uh, Daesh has, on the one hand, aimed at establishing a caliphate on the ground, which they did for a short period of time, you know, in Mosul and then in Raqqa in Syria. So on the one hand, uh, does have this instance of uh, uh, being physically located somewhere. However, the media power has definitely, the media power that uh, ISIS has uh, shown uh, throughout uh, their infamous uh, action, and I have previously mentioned some of them, uh, it's definitely uncomparable. It's much, uh, it's acting on a much wider global scale uh, as opposed to the establishment uh, of a physical caliphate, uh, which is located in Syria or Iraq. I'm sure you remember discussions about whether the military power of ISIS has uh, probably been uh, overestimated by us, uh, Western commentators, because we were mesmerized by their media power. And I do think this is actually a point, uh, you know, that we have definitely overestimated ISIS uh, because we thought, oh my God, this organization is so powerful because they show all these uh, media instances, so they should be powerful also on the ground. But actually, the real capacity of ISIS on the ground has never been proven. I mean, besides, of course, occupying some uh, territories, but the media outreach that ISIS uh, put uh, into place is definitely something unprecedented, uh, even compared to Al-Qaeda, you know. And the difference is, of course, that Al-Qaeda was a top-down structure, you know. Uh, Everyone remembers... uh, Uh, Bin Laden speaking to the entire world through Al Jazeera. Bin Laden did need Al Jazeera in order to have Al Qaeda's message spread globally. There was no other way, but ISIS does no longer need Al Jazeera. In fact, if you go back uh, to the reports about ISIS, Al Jazeera is never mentioned, you know, because uh, uh, ISIS does not need any top-down organization to spread their messages, you know. Their power lies in the unknown spreader, which is any of us. Anyone who has a social media account can perform a jihad. Actually, there is a very interesting document uh, uh, produced by ISIS, allegedly, um, called, uh, uh, I translate in English, a media man you are a, a fighter to, in which they tell people no matter what you do, even the smallest act of social media reproduction, such as retweeting a jihadi content, it's still a jihadi act. So please do it. This was the message back in 2015. So you do not need to come physically 
to Syria or Iraq in order to perform jihad, you can do it through your daily social media activity. So I think this is a very powerful uh, yet uh, uh, worrisome, of course, uh, message. And um, ISIS was at the time very successful in uh, implementing this double strategy of having a physical caliphate located in the Levant, but also being much more powerful at a global level through their uh, media structure. That actually squares quite nicely with something uh, we've been talking about also with other guests, that we have to shift the focus away from the concrete battle on the ground in order to assess the importance or the sort of the success of, of a war. Um, one of the other interviews that we'll, we'll air later this year is with Phillips O'Brien, who uh, studies grand strategy. And he says, battles don't win wars. It's everything around this that wins the war. And I think you're absolutely right to say that we, ha- we have to be careful about this digital war that's going on through retweeting the circulation of, um, of contents because, well, it might lead to other terror attacks, but it might also just lead to a spreading of ideas that in the long run will have a very negative effect on our idea of democracy and our idea of civil liberties that are important to us. What I'm wondering is, like, what about the citizen journalists themselves? So obviously they've been engaging with digital media to deal with physical violence, physical objects, situation on the ground. Have they adapted also to react to the fight that's going on in the social media? Are they reacting to this as well to try and put up resistance against that, the way in which social media itself becomes a, a theater of war, so to speak? Well, I'm afraid that now in, uh, in the context of uh, Syria, I mean, most of the citizen journalists uh, who used to be very active in the very first years uh, after the outprising have now left mm-hmm. for uh, safer places, uh, namely Europe, or unfortunately, many of them have been uh, killed or imprisoned by the regime. So I would say there is not such a thing as citizen journalism now on the ground. I mean, very few examples. The battle, I think, now has shifted to the digital domain. I did mention previously the fact that all these grassroots outlets that have been blossoming as an effect of the 2011 uprising are now located in Europe, and so they are now facing different challenges. So no longer you know, facing oppression and repression by an authoritarian regime, but uh, having, for example, to integrate or to tell about the possible integration with these uh, new European societies, issues such as uh, citizenship, racism, equal treatment. I mean, these are becoming uh, important for these uh, grassroots uh, outlets. So. This has shifted in a way, but I also do want to mention, uh, since you you said something that really resonates also with my work, which is that uh, we should not only assess a conflict in its uh, physical dimension, but we should also take a good look at what is happening in the domain of the digital, which is no longer the domain of the virtual, as we used to call it in the 90s, but has become enmeshed with our daily life, you know, so it is as real as the physical domain in which we live. Um, So definitely the digital has become a battlefield and some of the most savvy, smartest Syrian activists have understood this and they're now fighting their next battle 
in the domain of the digital and namely the next battle is to restore or uh, revive uh, the content that has been uh, deleted by corporate capitalism, which I mentioned before. So uh, many proprietary platforms have deleted content that was, uh, in the eyes of Syrian citizen journalists, important to tell the story of uh, Syria in 2011. Uh, so now there are organizations uh, such as the Syrian Archive, I think this is the most prominent one, based in Berlin. The Syrian Archive is working as an open source repository to store digital evidence, because this is what it is today, evidence, uh, for also future generation to tell the story of Syria. So not necessarily evidence in a, in a trial, but also as part of a history that would otherwise be missing at the corporate capitalism won the battle, definitely, by deleting all this allegedly violent content from their premises. Mm -hmm. So the Syrian Archive is doing a great job advocating for this content to be a seminal, important part of the history of Syria from 2011 on. And they're also providing digital evidence to many trials that are happening, for example, in Germany these days. So I think it's important to mention that uh, Syrian activists have become uh, aware of how important the digital domain is uh, in the battlefield, in, in future conflicts. And as you're saying there, it's important in a sort of a live situation, important in driving or perhaps mitigating violence at the time. But what you've just been saying about the Syrian archive, for example, and these issues of deletion, archiving, who gets to decide what's kept, who gets to decide what goes, that suggests that there's a battle over the history of the digital domain as well. So uh, battles to be fought in the future over control of our documenting of the past. Do you feel optimistic about this? You've got lots of experience with Creative Commons. You talked earlier about how positive you had been at the start. We've seen how complex it is and how easy it is actually to get disillusioned and, and feel very anxious about that. But do you feel optimistic that we are coming up with solutions, that things like the Syrian archive will proliferate and that we will sort this out? To quote an Italian philosopher who I really like, Antonio Gramsci, he used to say, I am pessimistic with the reason and optimistic by will, you know? So I, if I have to assess the situation uh, uh, analytically only, I would be quite pessimistic, you know, why? Because uh, the, the social web at, as it is structured today is mainly a private place. You know, it is definitely managed by corporations uh, most of them are in Silicon Valley, but not only now we are seeing the rise of China in the social media game with the TikTok, for example, and more to come for sure. So I don't think it's good news also that an authoritarian regime such as China is entering the digital game in a, such a successful way. And uh, we know how successful TikTok is in the Western world, actually. So if I have to assess uh, the way in which the social web today in 2021 is uh, configured, uh, then I definitely uh, to be pessimistic because uh, there are very, very few places uh, that are left to the so-called commons. Probably 99% of the, the social media game, which is a big chunk of the internet-related business today, is uh, controlled by uh, private corporations. And... Uh, the problem with private corporations is accountability. 
And, you know, so they can do whatever they want because it's uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram, TikTok. These are private spaces. We are misled in that we understand them as uh, also uh, public spaces, uh, you know, part of the so-called public sphere. But in fact, they are not. They are privately owned and controlled by these corporations, which sometimes uh, equals just one person as in the case of Instagram and, and Facebook. So that's definitely worrisome for the future of democracy. I think uh, we should look very seriously at what is happening with the reconfiguration of the social web. And we should, when I say we, citizens and governments, especially in Europe, find ways to put some more constraints on the absolute power that these corporations are, are manifesting. Otherwise, we really risk to become, all of us, like the Syrian activists who are now fighting for defining their own history. Because also in the future, we might find a, a similar challenge. And uh, there is definitely a need of governance process and accountability that should be implemented. However, I also have to be optimistic with the will, taking Syria as an example, and I was previously mentioning the Syrian archive, so these uh, smart kids have realized that in fact the next battle is going to be on the digital and they are implementing uh, platforms and you know tools in order to protect themselves from this uber power of the corporations. So I do believe that we still, you know, as individuals, as citizens, have the power to counteract, but we should act in a timely manner because uh, it's like these 10 years, uh, I I think we have been sleeping a little bit, you know, because uh, as I said before, there was a first moment of total excitement about what was happening in the Middle East. And then immediately this moment of excitement became anxiety and fear and uh, desperation because actually the Arab Spring was failing and becoming an Arab winter. But then we did not realize that these processes uh, that had been tried out in the context of the Arab Spring could become uh, something much bigger, you know, much more global, which is what is uh, happening, actually, what has been happening in the last uh, decade. So I think uh, it's time now for a wake-up call for all of us to realize that there are some affordances, again, of uh, the social web as it is that should be looked at with concern, also by us living in uh, comfort zones or Western neoliberal democracies. Because as you were saying, boundaries and frontiers, they don't really apply in the same way to what we're talking about here, as they do on the ground or uh, as they used to. Uh, Is this also where your own activism comes in, Donatella, with the Syria Untold website? Yeah, I think so. I mean, as I mentioned before, Syrian Thought was founded in uh, 2012. So very early in the unfolding of the uprising, because we did kind of realize or we had this gut feeling that uh, at some point uh, Syrian civil society would uh, disappear from the frame. So we needed to do something in order to protect it or at least uh, to have their voices heard. And this is what we are trying to do as uh, the organization uh, Syrian Told moves to a new phase, uh, which is, again, becoming more institutional because now, uh, again, I, uh, not by chance, I use the word organization because uh, it's now an NGO headquartered in Berlin. So we have kind of institutionalized something that was in the beginning a grassroots project. And if you look at the website, uh, which has also an English version, we try to uh, give room to uh, also artistic expressions such as uh, photography, cinema, 
but also to communities that have been uh, discriminated a lot uh, in the context of uh, the authoritarian Middle East, such as LGBTQ plus uh, communities. Uh, so we are trying to, uh, with our own project, uh, to give some uh, visibility to these expressions and voices that are unfortunately not heard in, uh, in mainstream outlets. And you mentioned earlier the way in which some of the citizen journalism has actually translated into film. And there's been a, a sort of a, the emergence of a, a thriving film industry in Syria. So I'm thinking of films like For Summer or Houses Without Doors or Silvered Water. Uh, can you just talk us through a little bit about how that citizen journalism ended up becoming a bit more of a film industry. I'm interested partly because I think it's a film industry that actually has a huge potential to impact on, more generally on filmic representations of war. It's some of the representation, the live witnessing almost the documentary nature of it. Is it a really interesting counterbalance to some of the narratives of war that we see on screen? Yeah, so we have to differentiate actually products uh, that come from uh, already established filmmakers from products that have been produced in the aftermath of the 2011 uprising by newcomers to the field, who were in the beginning videographers or citizen journalists who eventually transitioned into something uh, like uh, professional filmmaking, filmmaking. So I'm thinking, for example, about the difference between a filmmaker such as Osama Mohammed, who is the co-director of Silvered Water, a very interesting documentary, which was also compiled by, partially by Osama, who at the time already sat in exile in Paris, by editing anonymous footage, which was found on YouTube in the first year of the uprising. This, uh, this film, has been compared a lot to, you know, Godard kind of film essays, bears a lot of reflection over what is happening on the ground in Syria, but also what is happening uh, on the networks. Uh, because as I said, uh, a strong feature, a strong component of the film is the editing of anonymous footage that Osama found on, on YouTube. But that's definitely a work that comes from a professional uh, established Syrian filmmaker. Uh, and of course, we have to differentiate it from uh, work such as even Houses Without Doors or uh, you mentioned Forsama. So these are products that uh, emerge from this uh, new wave of documentary filmmaking uh, that erupts uh, in the aftermath of the 2011 uprising. And uh, their makers are not uh, professionally trained directors, but are just people who ended up uh, documenting the event as a matter of uh, fact, them being, for example, activists on the ground or uh, civil servants or you know, university students, but they don't, don't have this uh, professional background that someone like uh, Osama Mohammed has. So this new generation is definitely very interesting. We are talking about people who are in their now 30s, uh, more or less early 30s, uh, and they have been quite well received in uh, international venues. For uh, some, also went to uh, the Oscars, uh, like Houses Without Doors also was awarded, and many other films were awarded in uh, major uh, European venues mostly. 
I think what is interesting now to see is uh, the way in which this approach to filmmaking will uh, be changed by the fact that these people are now living in Europe, you know, so they can no longer produce that kind of Eastern cinema that uh, characterized uh, their first uh, feature films. So it's now time to see what this new generation of filmmakers will do in the context of a more, let's call it, stable situation in which they live in Europe as uh, citizens. So what kind of stories are they going to tell? Are they still going to tell stories related to Syria in a way? Or are they going to transition into something, I don't know, completely unrelated? This is yet to come because, as I said, you know, this generation so far has produced films that are uh, still related to the post-uprising context because they were still in a way working in Syria or living in the region. But now what happens when these people become, in fact, European citizens? So now Donatella, in a way, we're already talking about possible future developments. And that's a perfect cue also for a question that I have for you before we let you go. So could you tell us maybe a bit about what kind of lessons you think the media revolution around the Syrian conflict has to teach us about conflict and visualizing conflict in the future? Well, as I said before, I I think the the most important lesson uh, for me personally is that we have to think about what happened in Syria as not only related to Syria. In this uh, book, uh, which I co-edited with uh, Sune Ogbole and uh, Kay Dickinson called uh, The Arab Archive, I have a piece called uh, Why Syria is no longer only about Syria. So I I think we have to think about conflicts, uh, not as exceptions, but as events that are establishing our daily routine in a way, our normalcy. Again, the dynamics of the social web that emerged because of the Syrian conflict have now manifested as dynamics that are inherently attached to the way in which uh, contemporary networked media function. So what happened in Syria sheds light uh, on the fact that these are not flows of the system, but they are in fact features Mm -hmm. of the system. The inherent violence of uh, outmost circulation is not an accident that manifests itself in the Syrian context because it's a war context, but in fact, it is a feature that defines the very structure of the social web as it is conceived now. So we have to stop thinking about uh, conflict, uh, um, I mean, material conflicts uh, such as Syria, as exceptions, because we live in a society that is now characterized by total conflict. And I mean, even what we are living these days with the virus, it's it's a kind of war. Many people have actually used this metaphor to define it. So the new civil war is no longer a war that is necessarily fought on the ground, but it's a more pervasive condition. And so I think we have to realize it. Pierpaolo Pasolini, an Italian uh, Uh, writer and filmmaker used to say we are surrounded by violence uh, and the violence very soon will become uh, the utmost condition of uh, postmodernity and I think it was right he was aware he said uh, now I am living a very risky life so I take responsibility over the violence that I might have to face and this was quite prophetic because he was killed the day after however he underlined very soon violence will become a condition of society, no longer an individual condition, but uh, a condition that uh, it's more, as I said before, pervasive. 
Um, so I think that what I learned from the Syrian situation is exactly this, that violence is becoming, as in Pasolini's word, a pervasive condition of uh, postmodernity that not, not necessarily manifests itself in uh, open fighting. Mm you know, like in Syria, mm. uh, but it's part of our daily life. So we have to realize that uh, the media that translates uh, our postmodern condition, which is, you know, this networked environment in which we live and learn and love, uh, we do pretty much everything, especially after the pandemic. So this is becoming increasingly our, you know, environment. And we have really to be careful about what kind of infrastructure stays underneath this environment, because as I said, I do believe that uh, uh, what Syria reveals uh, is a dynamic that is by far not uh, a flow of the system, but in fact, a feature of the corporate sharing economy as it is conceived today. So on the one hand, exciting new ideas, developments, uh, social, cultural, aesthetic to look forward to, but also enormous challenges that come with this and that we should all be aware. And uh, especially in the digital age, not think things that happen in Syria really don't uh, don't have that much to do with us. Or they because they're physically separate, those ideas of, you know, the, the primacy of the physical presence are really kind of slowly eroded, I think, in the in the times that we live now with the digital infrastructure that we have that, as you say, sort of underpins everything. Donatella, thank you so very much for this uh, fascinating discussion. It's been absolutely great to learn so much about citizen journalism, conflict reporting done not by professionals, the role of the digital age, the chances and the risks and challenges involved in this. So thank you for coming to the podcast today. Thanks for having me. This was a very inspiring discussion and I look forward to actually maybe re-listening to it because there are lots of ideas that we have been uh, touching upon. So thanks for having me. Thank you. And thank you very much from me as well, Donatella. You've really shone a spotlight on the very complex and close relationship between storytelling and conflict. That example you gave of the possibility to actually carry out an act of jihad by telling a story and retweeting or sharing a narrative is a really good way of exemplifying that tight relationship, which is what our project is very interested in. So thank you for joining us for that extraordinary tour of Digital War. We hope that you, our listeners, have enjoyed this conversation as much as we have with Professor Donatella De La Rata. Thank you for listening and please tune in again next week when we'll be staying with the topic of digital war, digital reporting and conflict. Our guest will be Dr. Omar Mohammed, otherwise known as the Mosul Eye. A historian by training, Dr. Mohammed lived through ISIS's occupation of Mosul in 2014 and began a blog about it to document his experiences and also to counter some of the rumors that were rife. He continued to post updates throughout the occupation and liberation of the city. And today he uses his platform to promote healing and reconciliation. So we're going to be talking to him about that and about the use of images of peace and reconstruction to visualize life beyond conflict. So do join us for that. And if you would like to support our project, please do share and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use so you don't miss an episode. And please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts because that really helps people find the show. And if you would like to join the conversation further, you can follow us on social media, just search for Visualizing War, or get in touch with us directly by emailing us at viswar at our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young. The show was mixed by Zofia Gertin. Thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.